Hi, and thanks for tuning in to Women's Voices in Context. I'm Genevieve Gluck, and first I will be introducing some of the recent news items from the end of March and the beginning of April. Afterwards, I will be joined for a brief discussion with Caroline Norma. On March 17th, a man who was arrested for the murders of eight people at massage parlors in the U.S. state of Georgia told police his crime was motivated by a sex addiction. Six of the victims were women of Asian descent. Data reveals the number of anti-Asian hate incidents in the U.S. over the past year is greater than previously reported, and the majority of victims were women. Immigration officers in the Philippines have been collecting payment from human traffickers in exchange for allowing them to sell Filipino women in Syria as slaves. When the women arrive in the Middle Eastern country, they are purchased by various clients for $1,000 to up to $9,000. The U.S. House of Representatives passed a resolution to remove a deadline which prevents the ratification of the Equal Rights Amendment to guarantee women equal rights in the Constitution. One in four women in England and Wales have experienced either sexual assault or attempted sexual assault since the age of 16, according to data from the Office for National Statistics. More than 750,000 adults aged 16 to 74 were victims of sexual assault or attempted sexual assault in the year ending March 2020. There were 618,000 female victims, four times as many as male. A U.S. woman who says she was lured into sex trafficking via Facebook at the age of 15 is suing the social media platform. Of an estimated 100,000 minors sex trafficked in the U.S. each year, 40% met their traffickers online in 2019. Pakistan sentenced two men to death for a widely publicized incident of gang rape last year. After the assault, protesters took to the streets demanding legal reforms and stronger sentences, and Pakistan implemented a new law against rape, and the government is now working to set up a sex offender registry. The Australian Senate has banned the government from using terms that are described as gender-neutral. Senator Roberts, who introduced the motion, said, quote, Broad-scale genuine inclusion cannot be achieved through distortions of biological and relational descriptors, end quote. A university professor in southern Brazil was fired after students reported advice he shared with female students during an online lecture saying that women who are being raped should, quote, relax and enjoy it, end quote. The U.S. Senate confirmed the appointment of Dr. Rachel Levine, who identifies as transgender, to the position of Assistant Secretary of Health. Levine has, in previous posts on social media, supported the administration of drugs euphemistically termed puberty blockers to children. An amendment to the U.S. Violence Against Women Act 2021 would criminalize revenge porn and allow for either the threat or distribution to be penalized with a two-year prison sentence. A man in Egypt who killed his sister for doubting her behavior in a so-called honor killing has received a sentence of five years, prompting outcry from critics who say the sentence is too lenient. UK women are being, quote, used as guinea pigs, by doctors who seek to reverse abortions, according to Open Democracy. U.S. conservative anti-abortion groups are promoting an abortion reversal pill, which, in the research period of development, led to such severe hemorrhaging 
that the study was cancelled due to safety concerns. A French court of appeals overturned the defamation conviction for Sandra Muller, a journalist credited with the creation of France's viral MeToo hashtag, after she was sued by the TV executive she accused of sexual harassment. A survey conducted in Singapore revealed 4 in 10 women have encountered discrimination at work as compared to 1 in 10 men. A Chinese college student who pled guilty and admitted to rape was given probation rather than a prison sentence, prompting outcry on social media over the leniency of the sentence. Sex traffickers in the U.S. state of South Dakota disproportionately target Native American women and children, where Native Americans make up only 8% of the population, but account for 40% of those trafficked in the sex industry. Three women health workers in Afghanistan, working to distribute polio vaccines, were murdered in a wave of femicides targeting women in the public sphere. Just weeks prior, three women journalists were killed in the same city. Women's rights campaigners in Australia are urging the government to provide greater financial support for Aboriginal women's domestic violence services. Aboriginal women are 34 times more likely to be hospitalized and 11 times more likely to die as a result of domestic abuse. Telegram chat groups in Singapore circulating pornographic and private images of women and girls were discovered during police investigations. Currently, 10 such groups have been identified, some of which had at least 7,000 members. A website dedicated to documenting allegations of sexual harassment and assault at prestigious UK private schools, called Everyone's Invited, has accrued over 14,000 accusations, prompting the government to create a special hotline for girls seeking to report abuse. Women's rights activists in Pakistan are facing allegations of blasphemy, which can be life-threatening. Blasphemy allegations have resulted in targeted murders in the past. Women and girls in India who have survived acid attacks, sexual assault, and trafficking are entitled to government compensation that most are not receiving. There were more than 400,000 crimes against women and girls in 2019. In 2020, more than 12,000 survivors were waiting to have their applications processed. One of the original signatories of the Yogyakarta Principles, Professor Robert Wintemute, has changed his position on sex self-determination after listening to concerns from women. Arkansas's legislature voted to override a veto by Governor Asa Hutchinson, who sought to reverse a bill that bans medical and surgical interventions for minors done in the name of gender ideology. Several other states have proposed similar bills, including bills seeking to protect women and girls' sports and maintain them on the basis of sex. As of 2020, only 14% of Japan's parliament positions are occupied by women, lower than the average of 20% for Asia, and the global average of 25%. Allegations of rape in Australia's parliament building made by Brittany Higgins have prompted an outpouring of women coming forward with stories of sexual abuse, including women involved in politics, across parties. Hey Caroline, how are you? Hi Genevieve, it's great to be here again. Lovely to chat. I wonder uh, what you've been up to in the past couple of weeks. This last couple of weeks has been underground work with the gender critical feminists in Tokyo. So I can't say too much, of course, but um, we're making steps now towards, yeah, attempting to encourage a little bit more activity here because um, 
yeah, up until now, in case people have noticed or not noticed, um, we don't really have any uh, gender critical feminists in Japan who are, who are able to show their faces or speak under their own names. So we're sort of encouraging a few more people to come forward. So we'll see how that goes. Oh, that's interesting. And what kinds of uh, work are they doing or lobbying or education? What, what's the focus? We've got a draft law put forward by the opposition parties and supported by some of the minority parties as well that would effectively introduce self-ID. There's not much chance of it in Japan getting anywhere near being enacted because it's a conservative government that won't move, won't be overturned anytime soon. So we're kind of safe on that front, but just even having the draft law kind of circulating gives people, you know, in universities and more liberal areas of society kind of the ability to yes introduce policies by stealth as we've seen everywhere in the world mm. and that's that's obviously Japan's yeah biggest threat same the same as everywhere else but yeah how, how about you Genevieve you've been busy as always yeah I've been doing a lot of research on the connection between transgenderism and pornography which is a very eye-opening experience. I put together a presentation and spoke with Isabella from Whose Body Is It on YouTube and put forward my ideas, um, which I really tried to make accessible for people of all ages. Well, there's a bit of some sexualized language, but otherwise, um, I think pretty safe for people over 16-ish. And yeah, I just really wanted to get that idea out there to get people at least to start thinking about the connection between streaming pornography and transgender identities. So yeah. And just to yeah, reach out to our listeners, uh, the thousands that they are, um, and mentioned that, yeah, that lecture that you gave, as you, as you, you are saying there, Genevieve, um, is accessible. Uh, it's not just in case people get the wrong idea, um, this kind of research that Genevieve's done on the sissy porn stuff is not kind of an investigation into the you know the dark corners of the internet type thing it, it's a lot more sophisticated than that and kind of gives us an idea of what might be at the heart of things a little bit in terms of the political forces that we're facing yeah just in case anyone yeah had any needed any further reason to, to check that out um I, yeah it was just so fantastic Genevieve you've done us you've given us all a major gift with that kind of research thank you so much yeah I, I think in the whole thing it was really uh surprising to me the degree that academia is involved of course something that's been discussed before but how blatantly involved academia is in all of this so. absolutely yeah the more criticism that can be piled upon western academia and humanities especially um the better yeah it's an it's, it's an absolute scandal what's been going on so yeah and you've been exposing some of that thank goodness um speaking of gender ideology. Our first topic today is about the one of the original signatories of the Yogyakarta principles, Professor Robert Wintemute, who recently changed his position on sex self-determination after listening to concerns from women. This was reported in The Critic magazine by Julie Bindle and Melanie Newman. And for those who aren't aware, the Yogyakarta principles uh, developed in Indonesia, named after where they were established. Uh, they were created in 2006 as the outcome of an international gathering of human rights advocates. There were about, I think it was 29 original signatories, so not a very large group. 
And the finalized Yogyakarta principles were launched as a global charter by the UN. They laid the framework for basic human rights considerations. So things such as, you know, freedom from violence, torture, or freedom from sex trafficking, um, some very basic human rights considerations. But in addition to that, they set a standard for affirming gender identity without medical intervention or surgery. And we can see the influence of those ideas in laws being passed in several countries that are now pushing for sex self-identification. In this particular case, Robert Wintemute, professor of human rights at King's College in London, he said that he had failed to consider the impact of this legislation on women's rights and said that, quote, a key factor in my change of opinion has been listening to women, end quote. So, as I've mentioned before, the principles are responsible for sex self-identification laws, but also laid a groundwork for the merging of lesbian and gay rights with the transgender movement in law and policy. In particular, principle three, which reads, quote, each person's self-defined sexual orientation and gender identity is integral to their personality and is one of the most basic aspects of self-determination, dignity, and freedom. No one shall be forced to undergo medical procedures, including sex reassignment surgery, sterilization, or hormonal therapy as a requirement for legal recognition of their gender identity. Legal documents such as birth certificates and passports must reflect self-defined gender identity, and these must be recognized in all contexts where the identification or disaggregation of persons by gender is required by law or policy, end quote. So yeah, like I've said, this has influenced laws and governments, uh, including Canada, Denmark, Ireland, Argentina, and Malta. And Wintemute was quoted in the critic as saying, if I had thought through the implications of principle three, I would have had to consider the potential for conflict with women's rights, but I didn't. And neither did anyone else at the meeting where the principles were drafted. He said, quote, women's rights weren't raised, end quote. So I think for many of us and our listeners who are familiar with the way that these laws have played out, the fact that women's rights were not considered in this discussion is hardly shocking, but the fact that Wintemute is coming forward to say that he has possible regrets about this and is bringing this to attention, I think is a positive thing for this discussion. Isn't it? I mean, the... This was 2006, obviously, that, that this all happened and the um, Yoga Carter principles were updated or made more extreme in 2017, as listeners will know. And isn't it interesting that back in 2006, this was already uh, the time of the United Nations championing women's human rights um, and anti-violence campaigns against women and girls, all of those things had already been well underway by this period. Everyone can remember it even now quite well uh, but we can still yeah see these kind of international gatherings where you know women are completely forgotten <laughs> that's effectively what Wintermute seems to have been saying um, and therefore yeah obviously it, it shows us yet again doesn't it uh, we cannot rely on liberal institutions whether they be even uh, the international 
level uh, to stand up for our rights and we need obviously to separate breakaway autonomous self-determined um, organising by women because we're the only ones who are going to ever stand up for our own rights and that's why the women's human rights campaign which I think is set up directly in response to these set of principles obviously the women's human rights declaration uh, it gives a very comprehensive and detailed response to these kind of principles by reiterating all of the achievements that women achieved in international customary law in terms of securing uh, sex-based rights for women and girls and reiterates those achievements um, in response direct response to the kind of attacks that are coming uh, through uh, the take-up of these principles uh, that uphold the concept of gender identities I mean, yeah I mean what can we say I mean just supporting our own declarations like the women human rights women's human rights declaration and supporting our own organizations of women is the only thing we can do because it doesn't matter how much support we give to liberal initiatives that might look good I mean the United Nations was looking good back in 2006 um, you know we've experienced all of us in this generation happen to have just experienced a complete overturning uh, from liberals, from within liberalism, uh, that I think has taught many of us, and, and myself included, we we were on a on the wrong track. Ever thinking that liberal initiatives of, of women's rights were going to do anything. Um, I think. Sorry, I'm broadening this out too much, but yeah, just just I suppose yeah. My only response would just be to, to for us to double down on our own organisations and our own declarations. I suppose. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Um if these human rights organizations are not going to consider women's rights, we need to assert them and make them clear. Uh, what I find interesting or maybe disappointing about all of this is that many of the signatories were gay men. So I think that when it comes to women's rights, um, it's very disappointing to see gay men not considering women's needs. Of course, being men, that is a blind spot for them. However, I think that there are perhaps different ways in which men's blind spots about women's rights can manifest. Uh, in this case, Quintimute was saying that he hadn't realized that uh, males would try to take advantage to gain access to women's spaces. Um, not to be too harsh, maybe, but I think probably gay men wouldn't consider things like sexual abuse against women, you know, having not that experience themselves, or perhaps not the desire to do so, they couldn't probably see how heterosexual men might be capable of doing such a thing. And of course, we see this problem as well with Amnesty, Amnesty International, not considering women's rights. Um, apparently, in the Yogi Carta principles, there were um, uh, statements made about, you know, sex trafficking, of course, that women should not be sex trafficked, women should have the right, or in general, people should not be sex trafficked. And yet we see major human rights organizations now promoting sex trafficking as though it's empowering for women, such as Amnesty and the ACLU in the US. That's right. And going back to the ACLU, obviously, everyone will remember their support of uh, the pornographers and the uh, pornography industry in their commercial activities from the get-go. And none of us will be surprised now that the American Civil Liberties Union now supporting gender identity against the explicitly against the rights, sex-based rights of women and girls. Um, so yeah, we 
it's more so the, the forgetting of women. I mean, we're seeing amnesty actively acting against women's interests. Um, so it's true. I, I understand uh, Wintermead's kind of defences and statements about that time and, and his reflection upon it and his sort of revised thinking now. And, and I think it's, you know, obviously we can take that in good faith. I mean, it's, it sounds quite genuine, uh, this kind of not realising the extent of predation that, you know, things or men will take advantage of in order to prey on women and sort of forgetting, um, you know, certain considerations in relation to women and not having people speak up about in, in support of women's rights. That, that That's absolutely the case. And we see it happening on a daily basis. But yeah, in addition and above that, obviously this example shows us that we have organisations actively acting against the interests of women and children and sort of taking advantage of, you know, people's, people's failure to remember or failure to step forward and kind of stepping into that, those loopholes and, and really making, you know, making use of them for their own, yeah, libertarian or sort of male-centred kind of aims. Yeah, it's, 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 scary to realise how quickly the absence of people advocating for women's rights um, creates vacuums where organisations like Amnesty and others step in uh, to take advantage of and, and you know what that leaves us with when they do take advantage of such you know vacuums. Continuing on, on in the same vein, uh, the US right now is having a moment of discussing the medical transitioning or conversion of children involving puberty blockers and surgical interventions. Recently, Arkansas's legislature voted to override a veto by Governor Asa Hutchinson, who had sought to reverse a bill banning medical and surgical interventions for minors done in the name of gender ideology. And several states have been drafting bills to protect women and girls sports. Tennessee recently passed such a bill. And I believe both of us watched the Tucker Carlson interview. Did you see that, Caroline? I did, Genevieve. Magnificent wonder, piece of footage. Yeah, I wonder what your thoughts were. Yeah, this interview uh, from the Tucker Carlson, and I'm afraid I don't know America very well, so I'm just going on, you know, he's obviously described as a conservative um, television personality and interviewed the uh, Arkansas governor who has, as you, as you said, attempted to block uh, the passing of um, yeah, legislation in that state to uh, stop the medical experimentation on, upon children in the name of uh, gender identity. And the interview, oh, it's, I really yeah, encourage people to watch it if they haven't already, um, because Tucker Carlson um, <laughs> sounds like a socialist. Number one, he sounds like a socialist because he uh, attempts to catch out the governor, Arkansas governor, for having blocked this legislation out of um, lobbying, having been lobbied by presumably, and he doesn't say this, but presumably pharmaceutical companies or other you know, commercial interests that the state is hosting. Um, and he attempts to suggest to Hutchinson, well, look, you know, obviously you were lobbied by these business interests and that's why you attempted to, to stop the uh, legislation going through. Of course, Hutchinson denies that and there's no, no evidence there at all. But um, number one, yeah, Tucker Carlson's attempts to highlight, uh, yeah, 
moneyed interests in, in this debate, which is just magnificent. And then secondly, attempts to catch the governor out in his apparent misapprehension of what interventions either through so-called puberty blockers or through so-called hormones or through surgery, attempting to catch out the governor in not comprehending those interventions acts as actually castrating, making in, making sterile um, children. And so the, the governor doesn't go so far as to reject Tucker Carlson's assertion about this, which um, we know to be fact, of course, that you, if you intervene in, in the, the developmental, the adolescent development of uh, children, then you're likely to, to interrupt their yeah, reproductive capabilities. Um, but nonetheless, uh, Hutchinson does attempt to double down on <laughs> the suggestion that um, stopping the, the chemical experimentation upon children is an overreach by the state. And therefore, that's why he attempted to stop this legislation going through, because he wanted to entrust medical professionals with decisions over whether interventions would be made uh, to effectively castrate children. Um, so it was for me watching it from, I'm, I'm from the Australian state of Victoria, and we've had the, it's like a twilight zone, exact opposite and reverse uh, discussion going on that the state must intervene in the decision of medical professionals to take a path of therapy or long-term engagement with children coming forward with claims of gender identity instead of rushing straight for medical intervention uh, through hormones and other things. So yeah, we've had kind of the opposite reverse debate going on. And it's funny to see the arguments being made in both directions, but both to the ultimate end and profit of you know, pharmaceutical companies and ideologues. Yeah, it was a great interview. What I found interesting in this whole debate, or it's about like a 10 minute long conversation really, was how the governor kept kind of insisting that this wasn't chemical castration and Tucker Carlson kind of at one point interrupts and you know says, yes, it is. The inability to agree on terminology here is something I find of course, frustrating that we've all kind of probably experienced in some discussion about this at some point. But the insistence that it's not chemical castration is particularly concerning to me because in, at least in the US, the drug that's most commonly prescribed as a quote unquote puberty blocker is known by the name Lupron and it is also prescribed to convicted sex offenders to chemically castrate them. You can easily find this on Wikipedia. If you look up, uh, well, you have to look up two separate articles. They're not listed together, of course, if you look up chemical castration. And then when you look up the drug name, Luprolide, um, it lists uses there for the drug, but it doesn't really specifically mention the chemical castration. It says to treat paraphilias. So you have to link through to another uh, article. But yeah, basically, the side effects of these drugs have been known for decades. Um, I think we talked about this in a previous episode where I kind of implied that in my opinion, it's the rebranding of the drug that kind of causes people to forget uh, or to not make the connection maybe. But the side effects, including brittle bones, have been known for decades especially need to point out here that this 
drug is only given to men when they have terminal cancer, terminal cancer of the prostate, and only when it's to punish them as sex offenders and only given to the worst kinds of sex offenders because of the side effects that are known. And you can find this information, like I said, easily on Wikipedia, where it says that it's only given to the worst recidivist sex offenders because of the intense effects involved. Thank you so much, Genevieve, for stating this and reiterating it. And please do so as many times in our conversations as you can think to do, because yeah, truly, um, I think even including myself and feminists and um, gender critical uh, commentators, yeah, really haven't emphasized this enough. We've always gone for the, I think there's, you know, some kind of scientific information that's gone around that, you know, 100% of children on puberty blockers end up going through to hormones and, you know, obviously hormones, and then we're really talking about, in, you know, instant castration. But no, you, you're right, Genevieve, we're not, we don't, we shouldn't be making that argument. It's actually with the euphemism of puberty blockers, and we need, a, certainly need another name instead of that phrase, because you're right, that's the rebranding of castrating chemicals and yeah you and Tucker Carlson um, are on the right track with that and the rest of us need to catch up and start being yeah more more specific and precise about what we're talking about this these drugs are a major major health abuse of of children uh yeah they're completely unacceptable and you're right we should start from the get-go that any discussion of these drugs being used anywhere near children is yeah, we've got the evidence to say that that's, yeah, a scandal. Yeah, so I've been looking at, at this for a few years now. I think I really started looking at it around 2017 because for me personally, I grew up with epilepsy. So I was put on a myriad of uh, experimental drugs at that time. So it was a bit I don't know, a bit personal to look at this uh, issue of medical abuse in one way for me. And when I started looking into it, of course, I was kind of shocked that, you know, it's like the same drug used for so many different things and then given different names, but um, especially, so let me just back up. So this drug was created for prostate cancer in 1985. It was pushed through the FDA as terminal cancer medications can be, right? If you have a case where someone is potentially dying from cancer, then experimental treatments are pushed through and they're allowed to yes. be. But then it kind of failed to effectively treat the cancer had to be used in conjunction with other medications in order to get any kind of desired effect. Um, wasn't really quite so successful at treating prostate cancer. So then um, this is a bit of my, uh, maybe my personal opinion here, but seems to me was pushed onto women for a variety of under-researched women's issues or reproductive issues. So it got approval for treatment for breast cancer and endometriosis, but then is also prescribed off-label for other issues such as IVF, egg harvesting, and it's also used in surrogacy procedures. Uh, women have reported terrible effects of this drug, I should mention. Uh, this is also easy to find if you just do a Google search. Um, there's been thousands and thousands of reports of adverse effects. You have stories of women saying awful things like it caused their jaw to detach from their face. Uh, horrible, horrible things. And this was all kind of, I believe, swept under the rug 
um, the FDA was not required to do long-term research on the effects of this drug. And another interesting point, I think, is that it was touted as a cure for autism sometime around early 2000. Uh, it was called a junk science in 2009. It was kind of outed that these two doctors, Dr. Mark uh, Geyer, I believe is how it's pronounced, but he was basically promoting it as a cure for autistic children on the basis that it that he believed that autism was caused by hormones. Um, so yeah, lots of children were basically experimented on with Lupron, but important to note here that children who are diagnosed with gender dysphoria are more than four times as likely to be on the autism spectrum. This has been brought up before. J.K. Rowling brought it up in her essay about this and her concerns with it. But what I see here is that it was denounced as junk science for treating autism more than 10 years ago and seems to be being used on autistic children now and called a kind of a treatment for what's basically a similar, if not the same issue. How ironic and how horrifying that it's being pushed on yeah, these children, let alone, yeah, autistic children, ironically, for whom the drug was already 10 years ago uh, deemed <laughs> junk science and inappropriate, but now not just used to treat them, but celebrated in its usage in the treatment of children. And the, the Australian um, Pediatric Association just this week too, again, has reiterated that kind of um, approach to children uh, with so-called gender dysphoria, we're facing major medical bodies and major state institutions celebrating this kind of, yeah, this kind of chemical imposition upon children that were, that as you say, um, and as you're teaching us, thank goodness that, you know, was already discredited over decades and decades on, on many, many different fronts for women and for children and for even for men and for boys already discredited and now being pushed on a very specific population of very vulnerable children. Um, it beggars belief and it can only really be likened to the big waves of eugenicist kind of ideology that swept over certain countries, yeah, both before the war and after the war um, that, that had the support of states in the same way. I mean, I suspect that this is happening on an even bigger scale than eugenics did, but that's to be seen. I find the media framing of this very frustrating as well. I'm sure that you and listeners are probably already aware of, but they'll frame it with headlines like, this is an attack on transgender youth. Uh, this is like denying healthcare to transgender youth. And I feel like that kind of rhetoric is really telling of a neoliberal framework where the individual is the one being attacked, quote unquote, in, in this iteration of the story, where in reality, it's the limitation of the rights of companies. So what we should be saying is that the companies are having limited rights to market to children, but instead it gets flipped around. They say it's denying human rights, but no, it's denying the company. 
exactly. And Governor Hutchinson was attempting to say that medical professionals um, are having their right, their professional rights infringed by legislation passed by government. When we have already seen, um, yeah, medical professionals being the channels and the vehicles through which pharmaceutical industries are promote their businesses. I mean, especially in America, that's a very clear outcome of, of the privatised medical system in particular. Yeah, and to turn it on its head, and also to turn it on, on its head in terms of ne the development of neoliberalism in the Western world, that now, yeah, as you say, we have even children apparently being attributed with, you know, knowing consumer uh, rights and having their own interests as consumers that should be protected and they know what, what's best for themselves as individuals. I mean, that didn't exist, the conception that children have that kind of authority over themselves until these, these recent few years with gender identity. I mean, it's, gender identity has been a vehicle for, for introducing that idea that children should, you know, children's opinion of what is best for themselves should be upheld. And we, we'll see that come through now for all sorts of industries taking advantage of that Trojan horse of gender identity, establishing that idea for children. And that's a big development in neoliberalism. We already, of course, we already had it ridiculously for adults, even the most vulnerable adults on the face of the earth. But now for children too, that's a development, I think. Oh, that reminds me. Uh, just one more thing I want to point out on this issue is that the makers of these quote, uh, quote unquote puberty blockers, in particular Lupron, it was a uh, tap. So Takeda Abbott Pharmaceuticals. So in 2001, they settled for a record, I believe it was $850 million uh, record amount at that time um, with the US FDA for fraud. They were actually bribing doctors to prescribe this drug off-label. So, I mean, this is all out there. This is out in the open. You can find this on a search, like I've said, easily. Um, a lot of people don't seem to really be looking into these connections here between, you know, fraud. Uh, the doctors were getting kickbacks. Um, this is a major problem of the U.S. healthcare system. So I understand the skepticism about uh, what's called big pharma, um, and this that kind of gets lumped into sort of conspiracy theory territory. However, when we can clearly see the fraud cases um, and hear accounts of doctors saying that they were being given financial kickbacks to prescribe it, it it's not quite so far-fetched to imagine that you might perhaps make up some kind of off-label reason to prescribe it. Yes, and the fact that exactly, you know, we don't need to get into conspiracy theory territory and we don't want to, um, but that's right, that, that you and others can so easily find at least historical information that makes this makes questions be raised about this drug and its use and its celebration today at least that there seems to be that's right his corporate history that would raise questions that might want to be investigated by journalists but we see no journalists doing that and we haven't had as you say we haven't had journalists do anything but talk about these drugs as things to be celebrated for children making autonomous decisions about themselves and then we have someone like Tucker Carlson finally speaking plainly about 
what these drugs are and having him just written off as a, as a conservative commentator, but without any of the so-called socially responsible left-wing journalists and major media outlets even considering the things that the, <laughs> that are easily tracked through you know internet searches uh, we, we've been so let down by people who should have done the right thing and taken responsibility as adults and do actually just do their job for the, in the public interest but they didn't do it and so now we're yeah seeing the effects of that and we're seeing the effects of that in terms of pharmaceutical companies making a lot of money <laughs> if nothing else I think that there could be some kind of argument or statement here to be made about, again, just bringing it back to neoliberalism and choice, where anything that someone seems to choose for themselves must be therefore a good thing, an empowering thing, a sign of freedom, which is, you know, that just kind of like broadening it out to a more general societal issue. Like you said, allowing children to make lifelong decisions for themselves as consumers, I thought that's a really interesting point, one I hadn't really considered before. Yeah, that they're giving consumer rights or this kind of expansion of choice ideology and expanding it to children is, yeah, yeah, it doesn't bode well, I think. So Caroline, this is an area that I thought you might be interested in explaining I saw an article in CNN recently, which detailed some of the feminist movements and issues in Japan at the moment. Uh, it broke down several different issues. For example, things like the Kutu movement, the makeup of women in positions in parliament, as well as labor and income. So I thought it would be interesting to get your perspective on this as someone who has some expertise in this issue. Thanks, Genevieve. Yeah, I've, it is a topic uh, on women's status in Japan and the feminist movement in Japan that I could talk about for hours, and I certainly won't. Uh, but uh, the question, yeah, um, I hope can introduce us to some a country that is probably interesting for feminists uh, to look at as a a different example in the world compared to sort of the Western liberal sort of states that we we often talk about and often talk about the problems of because they're so familiar to us and they're so in our faces every day. But Japan's, it is different um, in its political compositions. It sort of brings up uh, different uh, problems for women and girls. Not, not then that's not to sort of particularize it and you know make it the most unique place in the whole world, nothing like that. Uh, just to give us some perspective on you know how patriarchy kind of can look different in different places, I think, because of political circumstances. So, you, you don't you don't see, I think, in Japan the kind of liberalism that we have in America in Australia or Canada. Um, so there's still no effort among men, I think to change surface level level structures whereby they might worry about uh, the management of a company being you know 90% men and you know try to recruit women or sort of prefer women in promotions within the company so that they're not at that level at all there's no detectable discernible liberal concern among elite men uh, let alone further down the chain in terms of um, 
that kind of Western attempting to sort of gender parity in any way. So that, that that's generally absent. Um, you have sort of features of, for example, the university academic female population is uh, somewhere between 10 and 30% of academic full-time staff and probably the lower end of that percentage more than the higher one. And still there's no, no attempts within Japanese universities to prioritise women's employment in most areas. Only 14% of Japan's parliamentary positions are occupied by women. That increases a little bit for the upper house, but not too much. Um, women only earn 50% of male income uh, on average. So this means that you have a society whereby the people gaining access to the resources of the country are not generally female or disproportionately male and it kind of that sounds straightforward I mean we have it in every single country in the world I know it's nothing particular to Japan but yeah just the in terms of you know this kind of capitalist uh, industrialized you know type country rich in many ways probably Japan is an example of a country that's particularly skewed against women accessing money and resources so they're a poor population yeah you generally meet you you know obviously yeah, the general women that you come across in everyday Japanese life uh, will be working in uh, casual jobs and struggle to live independently if they're so if they're attempting to live in a city like Tokyo pay rent for themselves in sort of working the kind of standard female job that they would get then they wouldn't be eating really enough they'd be struggling to eat enough to keep their body weight stable uh, that's sort of I'm just giving a generalized sort of example of what, what you would find so that's pretty frightening um, and it's frightening especially because obviously single mothers exist here divorce is actually a, a lot higher uh, than people might expect for somewhere like Japan it's not it is different from the western world but not too not as different as you might think uh, and so that produces a lot of single mothers. Uh, Japan doesn't have the problems of the West in terms of mothers keeping access and custody of their children upon divorce. Uh, that's a standard progression for Japan. But on the other hand, uh, the wives don't necessarily get the household, the house, or any of the assets. Uh, they almost never get men, divorced men paying for their children after divorce things like that. So anyway, so the upshot of that is that you have these, a big population of single mothers in Japan, even more so than in Western countries where obviously single mothers are really poor. Uh, they're even poorer here. And yeah, so that has obviously big effects both on them and their children uh, in terms of future chances. Uh, what else can I say? Uh, domestic violence is an area that's different from Western countries, I think, in that obviously Western countries are just as violent in terms of the men in those countries. Uh, that's probably around about the same. I don't think there's anything to say that uh, men are more violent towards women in Japan. But what's missing is even any liberal kind of tokenistic surface level attempts to do something about domestic violence as a, a human rights harm in the country. So yeah, there's really not the networks of domestic violence shelters or even the kind of consciousness among sort of in areas where you'd usually expect to find it in Western countries among, for example, hospital staff or doctors. Generally, as far as I understand the situation, yeah, even those sort of 
areas of society won't necessarily respond to victims in any you know helpful way they'll just tell them to you know not bother their husbands so much when they go home this time kind of response that's my understanding of um, what I've heard and just to just to let you know that I'm not just <laughs> pulling out little bits of conversation that I've had through you know talking to people it is there are some horrifying statistics in fact um, and one that's stuck out at me lately that I've read written up in in proper research reports is that actually the uh, domestic violence intervention orders, I mean, in Australia, we call them intervention orders, apprehended domestic violence orders, I think is another phrase that's used to describe them where the courts step in and impose restrictions on contact, on possession of weapons, you know, all of the things on perpetrators of domestic violence. So in Australia, these happen to be civil orders. In Japan, they're a bit different they have a criminal element, but effectively, it mean, you know, they re- represent the courts stepping in to protect victims. And um, the number one, the courts issue very few of these orders in Japan, only in the sort of couple of thousand a year. And apparently the peak of these orders being issued occurred 15 years ago. In other words, over the last 15 years, their number issued by the courts has been in constant decline to the current year. Um, I thought that was pretty extraordinary. May I ask you a question in that regard? I recently saw, and I wasn't quite sure how reliable this source was, it may have been a Chinese news source, I wasn't quite certain, but it seemed to be quoting government data. So I thought I'd ask you about this. The statistic I'm referring to is uh, one that says, domestic violence reports in Japan reached a record high last year during the pandemic. Supposedly 130,000 reports were lodged in 2020, meaning more than 350 reports per day. Is that something that sounds a bit off or does that sound accurate to you? Yes, I think you've got your numbers right there, Genevieve. Those statistics were quoted in the Japanese language press around the same time as well, quite openly. The thing about Japan is, and I know I've been emphasising all the the hard parts about Japan for women and girls, but it's a very orderly society as structured by the state, so that it's not quite as broken down as some of the Western countries that we know about. Um, So as a result of that, the demographic population level data collecting is reasonably good, um, even by the Japanese police. So you can rely on some of these numbers for what they're worth. And yeah, the Japanese police have been very open about the fact about the rise in the number of reports they're getting, particularly this year and last year with the coronavirus pandemic uh, that they're increasing. And also those same uh, reports uh, that you saw are reporting uh, double the kind of numbers of domestic violence reports to police as actually going to private NGOs or sort of civil service organisations in terms of women stepping forward uh, with problems of violence. And that that's also been increasing apparently as well. So that's all occurring at the same time that the courts are failing to issue uh, intervention orders. Um, and so, yeah, women are, are in a, a bad position on domestic violence. Sexual assault rates, again, we can say that they're roughly equivalent to Western societies, but again, disclosure rates are much lower, uh, reporting rates are much lower, and also conviction rates are about less than half of even the worst of the uh, Western societies. For example, we're seeing in the UK really low conviction rates on rape. Um, Japan falls below those, uh, well and truly below those. I saw a, a study the other day, just out of interest, in case anyone finds this particular 
the statistic interesting where they'd measured the length of time that it took for victims of rape to perceive of what was done to them as uh, wrongful and as a harm. And that average length of time was eight years. So this might be specific to Japan, I don't know. I suspect it's probably more exaggerated in Japan's case whereby we see women's status so low that it's not just a matter of women being massively victimised and massively robbed of social resources, which they are. In addition to that, I think we can sort of say for a society like Japan that it means that women themselves also don't recognise themselves as having rights that need to be upheld to an extent, maybe even greater than Western countries by virtue of the fact of their, you know, continuing historically low, low status. Um, and also, interestingly enough, I mean, I don't want to overlook the, the fantastic efforts of feminists here. I mean, if, the, if there's feminists working in the face of terrible circumstances, it's Japan. And I know, obviously, I know a lot of them personally, and they are completely my heroes. But just to, yeah, in case this is also of interest, there's no sense here and no, when people are having a good day, there's no statements made amongst feminists and activists that things are getting better for women here. So there's none of that narrative that sometimes you hear in Western societies. I don't know whether it's still around now, it might be dwindling a little bit now, but where people say, oh, you know, yes, but things have gotten better for women. Look, we've achieved this and we've achieved this and we've achieved this and things will continue to get better. Um, so there's none of that. Uh, so that, feminists here and activists recognise that things have declined uh, for women here and there's nothing on the horizon that makes it look like things are getting better. So it's sort of that kind of, it's, it's not a good environment, neither for women and girls themselves or for the, the feminists supporting them. If I could just ask you about this recent appointment of what's called a Minister of Loneliness. I saw this reported, I believe it was in, it may have been February or March when this happened, but basically because there's been this surge of suicide among women for one of the first times um, in the past year, I believe, the minister who is already in charge of dealing with the declining birth rate Tetsushi Sakamoto was appointed to tackle the problem of women's increasing suicide. I wonder if you saw this and if you maybe, like me, kind of wondered about this because in Western media, I don't see reports about the domestic violence. They'll often seem to claim that most of the suicides among women now could be tracked to the economy rather than the dramatic loss of their rights and sharp increase in domestic violence. And then you have someone like Tetsushi Sakamoto, whose platform is basically to encourage women to get married and to have children being tasked with addressing this increase. Yeah, I, I liked your analysis of that on social media, Genevieve. Thank you. Um, you made the point that really needed to be made. And that's exactly as you say there, article after article suggesting that, yes, the um, greater rates of suicide among young women and even women in their 30s and 40s that have happened since the COVID pandemic are attributable to women losing their jobs and losing money. At the same time that we there were reports in the Japanese language press of these rising rates of domestic violence victims approaching police, nobody uh, paid attention to those, um, nor did they pay attention to, there were some reports of how women's lives had changed with the, uh, they had a, um, in Japan, the government called a SNAP 
closure of schools and that caused mothers to not only of course have extra pressures on themselves in terms of handling uh, children and handling children's home education but it forced them out of the workforce and back into households which of course caused financial pressure but it also caused women to be locked into households with um, abusers uh, in addition to their children so yeah I'm with you on that one um, I, I don't know why domestic violence gets overlooked for Japanese women um, whenever it's certainly whenever it's reported in the English language press but also in the Japanese language press too it's hard to find information about domestic violence here um, even though the statistics are available through the police um, even though suicide is is quite easily surely if, you know associated with people suffering violence at least that would be the first thing you would think to look to given given that suicide is a massive form of violence in itself yeah I I appreciated your analysis of this situation going on in Japan on that front. I haven't mentioned girls uh, very much, but I did want to mention something about the lives of girls uh, in Japan. And that is in relation to a commercial sector that probably doesn't exist in other countries. In fact, it doesn't exist in any other country except Japan. And it developed uh, in the early 1990s to create and market uh, so-called junior idol groups. So these are the kind of, if you think of the stereotyped Asian girl band kind of dancing troops, dancing and singing group, that gets you somewhere to understanding what this is. But in Japan, they have a whole different sector that's completely separate from the entertainment industry that we, you know, they might think of the girl bands as belonging to. And instead, these, they're both girls and young women a part of an industry that uh, grew out of the uh, sex industry sector of Tokyo and its um, creators and its sort of executive management managements are also connected to that industry um, and still are. And the, this junior idol industry is different because it is caters to entirely a male audience. So you go along to uh, the concerts or the local gigs that these so-called girl band junior idols put on and the, the whole audience is male. It's not just a matter of performing to males, it's also that these men become so-called fans of the girls and have kind of events where they interact with them, uh, they assault them in some cases and we've had many newspaper reports of those and they also maintain connections with them through online kind of OnlyFans type platforms except perhaps not as sexualized as that but they certainly do go on to become uh, sexualized objects of these men through pornography so the the typical pathway of a so-called junior idol star so-called is to sort of graduate from one of these junior idol girl bands and then all the fans wait for her to make her first debut in nude modeling and then in pornography uh, this is expected and as a common outcome of of the industry itself because it is so connected to the sex industry so yeah people looking from abroad into Japan sometimes miss this because it's assumed that these girl bands are part of the regular entertainment industry that you find in Korea South Korea or China and there's problems with those industries there's no doubt but the sexual exploitation that is an incidental part of those industries in other Asian countries is different in Japan because there's a whole industry of junior idols that's built 
upon it. And so there's, yeah, there's a couple of documentary films made about junior idols in case anyone has a chance to look at them. And then you see, yeah, what the girls are put through. And these girls are from poor families that they're recruited out of the Northeastern uh, regions of Japan. And you can see uh, that they're desperate to make their way to be successful in the junior idol industry, thinking that they'll get into the mainstream entertainment industry, but actually it's a path to the sex industry in Japan. Absolutely shocking. Going on to the next point again, which I wanted to seek your expertise in because this has to do with Australia. Seems like Australia is having a bit of a Me Too moment with allegations of rape in the parliament. Uh, beginning with Brittany Higgins, who reported that she was assaulted in the parliament building. Um, this has caused an outpouring of women, uh, as well as protests, marches, and women generally coming forward with stories of sexual abuse, particularly women involved in politics across political parties. Yeah, this has been a surprising one for Australia. Uh, we didn't have the Me Too movement really hit the shores uh, at all. And this is probably people, at least in the media, are saying that this, this is Australia's Me Too uh, moment. It is a Me Too mo moment because it's uh, at this stage mostly an elite female uh, movement. Elite being, you know, women in the media, in politics, in business, and they have some access to the public sphere in terms of uh, commenting and talking about these issues. And if, yeah, of course, I mean, it is good what's happening. Um, the one particular highlight of it is, is Grace Tame, who was a woman elected Australian of the Year this year. And she speaks specifically as a survivor of uh, childhood rape and sexual assault and speaks on behalf of other survivors. So her whole framing of what she is doing is herself as a survivor and as representing survivors. And that's, yeah, so she's wonderful and there's many wonderful aspects of this uprising uh, but this is Australia <laughs> and um, just like I've said about Japan there doesn't appear to be much on the horizon that would suggest Australia's fundamental underlying polity of misogyny could be changed by this uh, only because and this is my opinion only because Australia tends to have a history of elite women achieving gains for themselves and for, for middle-class women. And, and there's nothing wrong with that. They're gains that haven't been achieved by Japanese women and they're gains that I've benefited from, you know, amongst others. And, and, and they are needed. I mean, we do need women to get into middle-class jobs um, and to prosper in that way. Um, but yeah, obviously underpinning Australian society is a big sacrifice made by other groups of women, uh, particularly in prostitution, uh, migrant women to the country and I don't mean that white you know white elite women are necessarily forcing that trade-off I don't sort of subscribe to that kind of narrative about these things but we do see I think in Australian you know history post-war history that these gains are made in terms of sort of liberal equality for uh, certain populations of women and it doesn't go much further than that. So the country really is uh, a big promoter, as people will, will know this, a big promoter of prostitution, a big denialist country about trafficking. And I mean, at the United Nations level, Australia is known for its denialist uh, stance on uh, sex trafficking. It has probably one of the most deregulated internets of the world. And I know America is pretty bad, but Australia is too. 
uh, very highly, highly deregulated internet. It's in going in the direction of deregulating the drugs industry, the same as many other Western countries. Having said that, I mean, after this big uprising uh, in sort of the media over, you know, these, these terrible crimes, you know, that were done to, to Brittany Higgins, among other women, uh, there's no de denying the horror of, of these things. Positively, one of the Labor Party, Federal Labor Party cabinet members, a female, a woman, uh, did criticise pornography in the media. And I think that is probably the first time I've ever known of a high profile woman in Australia to criticise pornography. Uh, so we've had, of course, we've had Melinda Tankard Reist, among others in Australia, for decades uh, speaking out against pornography, but she gets a lot of direct hassle and defamation from the liberal elite women in Australia for doing so. Um, so, yeah, I know it sounds exaggerated to say that that's the first time that we've had any woman of profile uh, talk against pornography in Australia. And I'm sure I could, I'm sure there must be other examples, but truly talk to any radical feminist in Australia. And I think they'll give you the same kind of story that we are beset by liberal feminism. And it's not just that radical feminists are marginalised, they are openly, you know, harassed and defamed in the sort of the elite liberal media because liberalism is is really strong at the heart of Australia it's totally different from Japan but similar to Japan I don't see much on the horizon even with these recent current developments going on uh, I don't see them as a, as um, changing the fundamentals of the country but I'll be very happy to be proven wrong on that you had recently published an article that I read about the sex trafficking industry in Australia that some of these points I had been made aware of before, but something about seeing them all kind of laid out together. Uh, I believe you had said that as sex trafficking is increasing, regulation is decreasing, um, other things like men being allowed to sue women for lack of service. Uh, is that right? Yeah, so the rights attributed in law and policy to customers of the sex industry, let alone the bosses of the sex industry and the men making profits out of it, are really comprehensive in Australia that governments actively attempt to protect their rights and establish them uh, commercially and as consumers. So, yeah, we have that whole thing, that going on in exactly the same time and historical moment as this kind of slight uprising over sexual assault, Australia, or the, the, the sexual culture of of elite men in Australia. So, and also the other parallel development going on, um, and I think Genevieve, you, you probably have more information from other countries about this, is the protests being lodged by schoolgirls over the kind of treatment they're experiencing uh, in terms of sexual victimization and sexualization within schools by their male classmates. And there's been a small contribution made among schoolgirls in Australia to their credit. Um, over that issue. But yeah, I think that's another development going on in the Me Too movement that gets overlooked a little bit. But I don't know whether you had more to say about that, Genevieve? Well, recently, there was this scandal involving a website called Everyone's Invited. So I don't know if you've heard of this, but been ongoing for the past uh, couple of weeks. Basically, the website was started up on March 8th, International Women's Day. And it was created by Soma Sarah who she says first began talking about rape culture in schools last summer, but 
wasn't believed at the time. And so that was her motivation for setting up the website, which basically allows anonymous testimonies to be gathered and collected, which as of this recording currently stands at 14,000 uh, submissions to the website. This is specifically in relation to top private schools in the UK. So what the testimonies are describing involves rape culture and in some instances claiming that administration and faculty sought to cover up these allegations of sexual assault to preserve the reputation of these institutions. I haven't personally read all of the accounts or um, I haven't dived into it. I've been reading news articles in relation to this story, but according to CNN, some of the testimonies include accounts of 10-year-old girls being catcalled, 12-year-olds being sexted, and disturbing allegations of rape. And some of these, by the way, involve very violent rape, uh, including gang rape, choking, things like this. These allegations also include state schools and universities, so not just limited to the top uh, elite schools, although initially that was what was being reported. And other incidents include girls being groped on public transport while in their school uniform, being harassed for nudes and blackmailed by their schoolmates, being filmed while being raped by several boys, and then being humiliated with the videos posted to social media. Other things include uh, Google Drives being distributed that were filled with uh, naked images of these girls um, used to humiliate and blackmail the girls in the school. This has been called a Me Too for Elite Schools uh, by media and has done some work in raising awareness over not only sexual abuse of minors, but also has caused a kind of public discussion about the influence of pornography, which I find very hopeful. I hope that continues. Uh, for example, Daily Telegraph journalist named Naomi Greenway has started a petition calling on the government to protect children from online porn and to make age verification mandatory. I have a quote from her, which she says, quote, it seems so blatantly obvious to me that pornography should not be openly accessible online. The government needs to legislate so that pornography sites have to put their material behind a paywall or age verification. Platforms that distribute the material should also be held accountable. A news agent would be prosecuted for selling an adult magazine to a child, so why is Google any different? The material online is much more hardcore, end quote. And also a former home secretary named Sajid Javid, I believe, spoke with the BBC saying that he believes part of the problem in this sexual abuse issue is that what he calls basically a, a pandemic of sexual abuse, child sexual abuse in particular. And he says that it's way too easy for young boys to view pornography online. He put forward, I believe, 96 recommendations to the government for ways to counter this, uh, one of which was to ensure age verification checks, as Naomi Greenway said, but also more generally, he expanded on the idea of child sexual abuse in general, which we know to be an ongoing and increasing phenomenon, especially as 
people are at home during lockdown. A shocking thing that he reported in his interview with BBC, I thought, was that he said in within one month, a single month, Caroline, March to April in 2020, during the first month of lockdown in the UK, nine million attempts were made to view child sexual exploitation content. Defies description, uh, Genevieve, exactly as you've described the kind of problem we are facing with male pornography use. I mean, that the, the number that you cited just then is breathtaking, 9 million attempts uh, in one month at child pornography for, or attempts to view child pornography. And that's just attempts to view child pornography. Can you imagine the attempts to view all other forms of pornography made mostly of adult women as well. On top of that, uh, it's hard to even fathom, especially given that young men are statistically known to, young boys and men are statistically known to be uh, higher users of pornography than other age brackets of men. Um, to think that the, the proportion of those kind of attempts to see material uh, that are coming from younger generations of men. And we see now the exact outcome upshot of that, you know, behaviour in households, in bedrooms, alone, um, amongst, you know, whole, whole swathes of male populations in Western countries, that they then go out into the public sphere and act in ways that are unfathomable and massively harmful and abusive to, to the women and girls around them. You know, it grooms them to become predators and offenders. And nobody can be surprised that now these girls are having to say something about what's been done to them over their years in school. We've fed them to the wolves, really, by allowing the male cohorts around them to grow up like this. And now we have to do something about it. And it's and it's wonderful to see journalists like Greenway and the Daily Telegraph yeah, come out so speaking so plainly. Uh, about what needs to be done. At the very least, we need the age verification measures in place as a starting point to curtail the yeah, pornography industry's operations online. That, that's just a starting point, but it's a very good one uh, and that we can generally expand and build upon to the point where it makes it really hard to access pornography at all online by anyone. I mean, that's our ultimate goal. So I don't think people should see sort of things like age verification measures as tokenistic or kind of giving the industry an excuse to rate in a kind of beautified sort of way it of course it could end up like that but I think the other way to see it is this is just the thin end of the wedge that we pursue a measure like age verification and then we pursue it for bigger populations and we pursue harsher and more restrictive measures for verification etc until we escalate them you know so far that the industry has trouble operating just like we've done for the tobacco industry in many western countries that we had the same approach for them and, and their their products are effectively stamped out in a lot of Western countries now. So we can do the same for pornography, I think. Unfortunately, I feel a bit dispirited about the whole discussion because to begin with, I think it's really sad that parents would have to have a discussion about pornography with their children to begin with. I, I wish that we lived in the kind of society where you wouldn't have to have that conversation. I think that's a relatively new phenomenon because pornography much used to be much more difficult to access. I believe the average age that I've seen floating around is like 11 years old when a child 
first uh, views pornography, not among all children, but among children who do, that 11 is the average age. And I feel a bit, like I said, not quite sure how to proceed because I think there must be a very large reckoning about technology in general. For example, it's not only pornography sites. I, in doing my research about transgenderism and pornography found how shockingly easy it is to find really disturbing pornographic materials on sites that are not even necessarily marketed as porn sites. Obviously, Leila Mikkelway, as we talked about, has been doing excellent work with Pornhub. However, I really feel that that's just the tip of the iceberg in a lot of ways. Like, for example, Twitter, it's really easy to find porn on Twitter. Instagram has done some work in cracking down on that, which ought to be replicated across other social media platforms. But again, another problem you have is these tube sites that will just pop up the ability to create new platforms for these things, it seems to be too easy, as well as Reddit. My God, I was blown away, Caroline, by the amount of pornography on Reddit. Uh, of course, no age verification involved. I really wonder, what would it take to protect children from this type of content? I wonder if some kind of AI technology could be used in a way. I wonder if uh, maybe this will sound a bit of an overreach to some, but I have wondered if it's possible to have one internet for children and then another internet available for adults. I mean, of course, being radical feminist myself, I, I don't see pornography as only an issue for children, but we really need to start somewhere. I mean, children are being raised on a diet of streaming pornography, and it it's really looking grim for what their development, social and sexual development will be like as adults. Thanks, Genevieve, for the thinking that you do outside of the box. It really helps us and it's absolutely crucial. I think all of us can be lulled into an acceptance of what the parameters of Western society have said about the internet and that somehow we're forced to accept the idea that yes children would be exposed at age 11 12 and 13 to to pornography in any form is inconceivable I'm, I'm 45 um, obviously and even for someone my age it's pretty inconceivable you know I know that would be hard to understand for young you know people 10 and 20 years younger than me but it is uh, it, it's not this has happened really quickly uh, and yeah and widely uh, and to an extent obviously that none of us even fathom even younger people cannot fathom the extent that which it's gone I know that but um, yeah I think we we should quite freely think big and radically about this issue because surely it's effectively dismantling the family so families whatever we might say about the family as a unit of society you know there's plenty of criticism to be made there but we just we still live with that historical reality of our societies where families do actually make up you know the, the basic units in whatever form um but, I, but as far as I can see families are losing any 
you know, control or guidance of their children through this, not just through pornography, but a lot through pornography, whereby, I mean, you see the courts in Australia now that the number of young men, like as in really young guys coming through as child pornography convictees is really high. And they've come just from normal families that have not necessarily abused them or, you know, led them to any such outcome. But I feel that families yeah, have really been betrayed by the state because the state has obviously failed to protect their children from these materials. And I'm not saying that, you know, family household members, particularly fathers themselves, are not accessing the materials themselves. I mean, I'm not saying they're completely innocent. But on the other hand, yeah, I mean, as, as you say, Genevieve, I mean, fa even diligent families and attempting to do the best things by their children are being thwarted by the fact that these materials available, as you say, freely and easily through platforms that children are accessing normally. We all are accessing them. Um, so yeah, any big thinking we can do, I, I think is gonna resonate with very large populations in our societies. Um, obviously, and I know nobody likes to bring up the example of China, but we at least have to be aware of the possibilities. I mean, the Chinese government just cancels the operation of applications once pornography is found on the applications and they do it even in relation to some of the, the Chinese local applications not just the foreign ones and sure the operation of that policy you know might be done well or done badly in certain cases and not others but it's certainly within the jurisdictions of our states to say you know your application will be hereby blocked by internet service providers and we will force internet service providers to do so um, if it's if you know child at least child pornography is found you know our states are not even disallowing child pornography you know to be trafficked on these platforms why can't we insist upon our states taking that kind of stance I know that everyone thinks of China as you know maintaining uh, tens of thousands uh, of a workforce that uh, monitors the usage the consumer usage of the internet in terms of consuming pornography and that is true they do we can object to, we might object to that particular strategy we can but don't forget there's also the strategy of requiring uh, these tech companies that are operating applications to keep their applications pornography free and if they don't they do so at the threat of having them switched off effectively blocked in the jurisdiction i, I don't see too much of an imposition upon you know, the regular person in that kind of policy, why can't we at least think in that direction, let alone, you know, all the good ideas that you've, much better ideas that you've got, Genevieve, on, on this issue. And I think we, we would get support from, you know, the regular families who are struggling now to, to keep any, you know, control and guidance of their children who, who they, you know, in many, most cases, they want to do the right thing by, but they can't when they're being undermined by the internet, is, is my kind of view. I totally agree. I see some people comment, you know, that parents need to do more, but the reality is children need to use the internet for things like school reports, projects, and so on. There's not really that much parents can do, unfortunately, especially once a child has something like a smartphone in their hands. Like I said, even just being on social media is a pathway to grooming. I don't know if you're familiar with Belle Delphine, uh, just briefly want to mention her as an example of grooming. Uh, she began posting selfies on Instagram, I believe she was about 17 at the time, 
now Belle Delphine is the top number one paid OnlyFans content creator who earns roughly $2 million a month. I believe she's 19 yet now. So just going from a girl in braces posting selfies on Instagram within a couple of years to creating pornography and using, by the way, very, very sexualized child imagery in what she does. Um, I have seen, unfortunately on Twitter, I've seen accounts of child sexual exploitation that I don't feel comfortable reporting only to Twitter because I feel like, what are they going to do? Maybe they'll suspend the account, maybe. I've reported some to child sexual exploitation services, um, but the reality is that even reporting some of these types of things, there's no legal ramifications that happen. At most, they might suspend the account, but then they'll just go on to create a new account. And it's really disheartening too, to feel like, you know, the user has to be the one to find these problems and then report it to the company, which seems to me anyway, to be doing very little. I believe that uh, a report for Twitter's child sexual sexual exploitation content from last year only had about 60,000 cases mentioned, which is absurdly low in my estimation. Facebook reported 20 million uh, and was responsible for 94% of cases of child sexual abuse images reported by US technology companies, by the way. So I feel that there's not only underreporting, um, ease of access to these types of materials, but also a huge lack of legal ramifications for those who create or share the content. That's right. And we've seen, as you mentioned, Layla Wicklewaite being so successful with the campaign against Pornhub um, in her call for it to be shut down and for its executives to be jailed. I mean, she's been strong on that message and it's been consistent from the very start of the campaign right until today. We all know it um, and we all agree with it. But we've been less brave in calling for these platforms like Facebook and Twitter to be shut down uh, for their carriage of child pornography. And I know it sounds dramatic and I suppose it's inconceivable because these platforms are used for so many other purposes. But yeah, as you say, Genevieve, it's very easy to find shocking pornography on them or to come across it even. And I'm not sure why we're accepting that, yeah, profit-making tech companies should be allowing even one image of child pornography on their platforms and still be entitled to make money. Yeah, this is a standard that we've yeah, really walked past um, and we don't need to, I don't think. One of my biggest concerns in all of this is that, you know, children are being raised on sexual abuse materials. Of course, we know from decades of research that pornography impacts sexual violence, behavior, aggression. Um, I'm really concerned about this future generation growing up in this climate. Uh, I wonder about things, of course, like OnlyFans. I feel like it's this pipeline of like grooming children and then ushering them into basically what I would consider like self-sex exploitation. It's like self 
determined exploitation, if that makes sense. And kind of being told that that's, you know, empowering or good for them when it seems just, you know, very dehumanizing, especially towards women and girls. And what kind of a society will we have when a woman's or a girl's degradation is considered a path for freedom? Yes, I completely agree. And the way that you phrased it before, Genevieve, I think is exactly right. Things are looking grim. Yeah, that there's no other way to say it. And I'm, I know that everyone listening um, would already have those thoughts in their head. Um, I suppose we just have to always attempt to find opportunity in what we face <laughs> as politicos or whatever we might think of ourselves as, as activists. Um, and I suppose attempt to think of this moment in history as one where obviously women and girls are coming under massive and intense pressure. That's right, to, to both self-exploit um, as well as um, be preyed upon by male peers and um, men around us for to make profits out of our sexual exploitation. And that's happening on a daily basis now, especially with OnlyFans, as you say, those kind of platforms allow pimping of women so easily now that maybe this kind of point moment in history is sort of because it's changing, things are changing so quickly that maybe we're not yet at the point where women are fully accepting the new reality and maybe it'll open up opportunity for women to see just the extent of what's facing us, that the writing is on the wall uh, and maybe we can mobilise women against it because it's become so extreme now and it's just so obvious the, the future that's waiting for girls um, now that maybe women might respond to that over the next decade um, or it could go entirely the opposite way of course but we always should hope that somehow we can turn it around so I think for radical feminists yeah and I don't mean to be Pollyanna kind of ish about this and I know I'm sounding that way but um, I think we should be bold and as radical as we can possibly be uh, this is our one chance um, I think to act in extremely severe, grim circumstances for women. And I think that this is no time to be liberal, obviously, or water down our message. And I think Layla Micklewhite has shown us that, hasn't she? I mean, she's her message has been the most radical possible and she's succeeded in that, hopefully, so far she has, and hopefully will continue to do so. So, yeah, that's the only possible positive message I can dredge up from the, the kind of stuff that we're talking about, Genevieve. I wish we had about a thousand Layla's, <laughs> yes, <laughs> you know, we do. Yes. We need more of that for sure. Uh, we need more standing up against sexual, it, just in general, the ability to recognize sexual abuse and to, to say n no compromise. There's no compromise here. We have to do something. Exactly right. We can all follow in her footsteps, I think. Well, thank you for having this conversation with me again. <laughs> no, thank you, Genevieve. We're all very grateful to you for what you're doing. Please keep it up and don't get um, bogged down at all. Thanks. And I'll talk to you in a couple of weeks. Great. Looking forward to it. Thanks, Genevieve. Thanks again for tuning in. To listen to previous episodes, you can subscribe to this podcast or you can find previous episodes at women's-voices.org 
and recordings of feminist texts. You can find me on Twitter at Women Read Women and Caroline Norma at Caroline Norma 76.